Welcome to Dealmaker Diaries, where you hear directly from the dealmakers who you invest with. M&A, real estate syndication, and more. Strap in for unparalleled advice, wisdom, and insight from some of the world's best business minds with Don Thomas and G1C Group. All right, guys, we have a great show lined up for you today. We have Mr. Yona Weiss from Madison Specs. So, um, in having conversations with a lot of investors recently when talking about depreciation and cost segregation, I, I, I learned a lot of investors aren't aware of cost segregations and or they haven't been able to utilize offsetting um, passive income using depreciation. A lot of them a lot of them have told me they haven't experienced that. Their accountants aren't familiar with it. So I thought it very important to have Yona on the show today to explain cost segregation in more detail so they are aware of this methodology and can utilize some of that so that they aren't leaving money on the table for the IRS. And just a little bit about Yona. Yona is a powerhouse with property owners' tax savings. As business director at a national cost segregation leader, Madison Specs, Yona has assisted clients in saving tens of millions of dollars on taxes through cost segregation. Over the past 15 years, Madison Specs has done over 16,000 cost segregation studies covering all 50 states, resulting in over $3 billion in tax savings. So with no further ado, let's welcome Mr. Yona Weiss to the show. Let's go. Welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us today. How are you? My pleasure. I'm doing wonderfully. Thanks so much for inviting me. Um, likewise, likewise. What time is it in? Um, are you in Israel right now? I am. Yeah, it's pretty late, but uh, it's okay. It's morning. All right. Yeah. Thanks for taking the time. I know you're in Israel. I'm in Japan, so it's quite a big time difference. So thanks, for, <laughs> thanks for being flexible. Not a problem. Not a problem. All right, so Yona, why don't we um, jump into a few things? So Yona, I know you're you're known as a cost segregation expert. So before we jump into how you got into that, tell us a bit about your your childhood, where you grew up, and how that environment led you to your current station in life. Well, wow, that's a you know interesting question. My tr- truth be told. I was never interested in uh, in business or finances, real estate, any of this sort. I, I was kind of a, a wild kid who liked to play sports and uh, just do my own thing. And at a certain point, it was actually a really interesting turn of events. <clears throat> I broke my leg in a soccer game when I was 14. And I think that actually had a a major impact on the trajectory of my life. So you asked about my childhood. There, there you have it. We're, we're getting into it. Um, but one of the things that did it, it kind of put me <clears throat> into different groups uh, of I kind of found a new group of friends because I wasn't playing sports anymore, uh, doing different things. And long story short, uh, I became much more religious in my, in my life and wanted to get into uh, you know just move to Israel and that's kind of what happened to me when I was uh, in the middle of college 
and went into a very spiritual kind of existence where I, I was just learning, teaching, you know, I had a family and just living life, enjoying life. But at a certain point, uh, as in, in the life of most people, you, you kind of have to think about how you're going to pay for, uh, for this lifestyle. And I didn't have anyone supporting me. So I figured I got to go out and maybe get a real job, enter the real world and see what I have to offer. And you know, long story short, I found real estate about six years ago or so after about 15 years of just kind of teaching and enjoying life um, through that way. And, you know, no, no regrets. I've been blessed to have incredible network. And I think that's really where all the blessing comes from, right? I say all the time, your network is your net worth. I have enjoyed the the benefits of having an incredible network and just meeting people, networking. One opportunity leads to the next and literally continually growing um, and new opportunities coming. So that's uh, that's kind of the the Reader's Digest version of childhood until where I am today. And um, how I became the cost segregation expert is maybe the next next chapter of the story. Okay, so you grew up in the States and then moved back to move to Israel rather. That's right. Yeah, I grew up in Southern California. Okay. Oh, yeah, I spent quite probably a third of my life in Northern California, San Francisco Bay Area. So, okay. All right, and I definitely agree with you about um, network being your net worth. I mean, it's a lot of times when you when you start on an entrepreneurial path, you don't know how you'll get there, but those opportunities right. and people just appear in your path once you set that intention through your network. So it's I think it's very important to have an expansive and huge network. All right, so Yona, for our listeners and investors who have never heard of cost segregation and are are unfamiliar with exactly how it works. Can you can you break it down for us if as if we're five-year-olds? Absolutely. That's you know one of the blessings I have from being a teacher is is being to take these difficult concepts and, and break it down that everyone can understand. So um, basically it's a tax deduction that you get by owning real estate and it's called depreciation. So conservation is really just an advanced form of depreciation and depreciation isn't what it sounds like. It sounds like a negative thing, right? The traditional meaning of the word is that something's going down in value. It's depreciating, but really it's just a borrowed term from the tax perspective. And so when you buy any property besides your personal residence, you get to take this tax deduction called depreciation. And what it says essentially is that you can now take a tax deduction of the entire purchase price and the entire money spent on this property over a long period of time. And so cost segregation is just breaking down that depreciation into different categories of things that depreciate faster, meaning you can take bigger tax deductions or a larger percentage of those overall tax deductions in the earlier years of ownership. Okay. And how long has the um, IRS allowed, allowed us to use this methodology? Is there a history to that as why they start using, the, using this method? Sure. I mean, depreciation has been in the books for, for a very, very long time. Um, cost segregation really got its first form back in the 1970s. Uh, when it was called component depreciation. And then in the 1980s, in the Reagan tax reform, that's when it took a much more solidified um, standpoint. And over the, over the years with different uh, very important ca- uh, court 
cases, it has developed into what it is today. So, you know, many times, like I said, it's really looking at a property and saying, well, there are certain components of it that can be depreciate faster. So for example, personal property, things like appliances, furniture, equipment, cabinets, things that aren't structural to the property, you can actually take them as a, as a depreciation deduction over a five-year period. So over time, um, other you know, corporations or, or businesses have challenged the IRS and said, well, um, you know, and one of the biggest ones was in the 19, I think 1994. So Hospital Corporation of America, a very large corporation and owned a lot of properties came and said, well, you know what, we have a lot of, um, you know, flooring carpeting and, and vinyl flooring and things like that, that we have to replace that every, you know, five, six years or so that should be depreciated at a much faster rate. And so they were given that. And so there are many things have kind of piled on over the years that can now be included in, uh, in taking these faster deductions. So it's just really gotten better and better over time has gone on. Okay. Interesting. All right. So Yona, let's say I don't own the property, let's say I invested 100K in a 230-unit multifamily syndication in 2020, and I get my mm -hmm. K-1 in March, it shows I made 8,000 in cash-on-cash cash returns from my 100K investment. So would cost segregation benefit me for my 2020 tax reporting? Yes, absolutely. So if you're an investor, even if you're a passive investor in a syndication, typically speaking, most times they structure it that you own a portion of the equity of that property. Now, being an equity owner, even if it's a small percentage, that means you also get a percentage of that overall depreciation. And that gets spread out equally according to the percentage of ownership of those uh, investors. So essentially, like you said, you'll get that K-1. That's a tax form that shows you what income you've gotten and what deductions, what expenses there have been. And so depreciation is one of those expenses, likely, especially if you're taking, if the sponsors are taking what's called bonus depreciation allows you, or cost segregation, allowing you to get a huge amount of deductions in the first year, the first five years, you're actually going to see probably those $8,000, like you mentioned, of returns income. And you also get a big chunk of depreciation, which will likely be a lot more than your income, which means you'll have more deductions than you have income translating into income tax free income. So again, all that income you're going to be taking in and you're not going to be liable to tax on it. That's how depreciation works. Okay. That's amazing. Yeah. And I think it's interesting because I hear, I mean, when I'm talking to some of my investors, when we're doing our raises, Quite a few of them, they, they've said they haven't been able to utilize depreciation for their real estate investments. So are there, are there accountants out there who possibly don't know about or aren't versed in this methodology who are leaving money on the table for the IRS? Yeah, that's, that's for sure true. Unfortunately, there are plenty of accountants out there that really do not know about this. And I think that you know, it's unfortunate because accounting, like you know, I like to liken it to medicine. You know, you have a, a general practitioner who doesn't necessarily know all the niches, all the nuances of every type of, you know, internal medicine or, you know, brain surgery and these kind of things. You need to contact experts in each of those respective fields in order to maximize it. So there's a big difference between an accountant who's just there punching numbers and entering, you know, information or someone who's like a tax strategist, especially a real estate savvy tax strategist who will, you know, be proactive as, as opposed to reactive. 
And so, yes, unfortunately, people are leaving a lot of money on the table because they just don't know about these tax benefits. Yeah. So would you would you recommend those investors or people in general? I mean, get second opinions I mean, the same way they do doctors or look for an accountant who's, like you said, more versed in real estate tax reporting. Sure. I mean, uh, the famous quote goes, you know, it's not about how much you make, it's about how much you keep. And it's probably one of the most notoriously wrong statements I've heard from people quoting their accountants, which is basically a sign that you should find a new accountant is, well, if you're paying a lot of taxes, it means you're making a lot of money, right? Uh, You heard that one before? <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, that that that's a sign of accountant that you don't want to work with. Meaning, especially if you're investing in real estate, there the the tax code is a playbook, and so if used properly, you can, uh, you know, find loopholes. Not not necessarily loopholes, but really strategies within the tax code that allow you to take deductions for doing certain activities. And real estate is one of those things. So make sure that you're maximizing, you know, every aspect of that. Excellent. All right. So how do you know, or how do I know if, if my property is a good candidate for a cost segregation study? Basically any property purchased for over a half a million dollars, um, you know, in the last five years has been, is, is a great candidate for it, but to be sure you can reach out to myself or, you know, any other cost segregation expert out there, um, you know, I work for Madison Specs, we're the largest national company doing this. And what we do is provide an upfront free analysis of any property, which will tell you ahead of time how much tax benefit you can expect by doing a cost segregation study. So you'll know ahead of time, is this worth it? Is my property a candidate or is it not? But again, almost any property purchased for over half a million dollars, that's like a rule of thumb for me that you have you know, a 10x um, return on investment, meaning there's a service fee involved in the process of getting a, a study done, but the amount of tax benefits you're going to get are, are 10 times that uh, for sure. Okay. And when you say any property, you mean commercial property, that, that wouldn't include primary residence, would it? Correct. Excluding your primary residence, because again, this is only for rental property or business property. So it doesn't necessarily have to be commercial. It could be residential. It could be a single family, even it could be, you know, um, multifamily, but your personal residence, you don't get the depreciation deduction for. Okay. Okay. So I'm a multifamily investor and I decide I want to do a cost segregation study, or at least look into doing it. How, how do I get started? What are, what are the steps? First step is reach out to someone like myself, get a free estimate, um, whether you're under contract in a property and you're just looking to see, hey, when we close on this, I want to know what my benefit's going to be. And I want to be able to provide some of that information to potential investors. Um, reach out, get that free analysis, and that will tell you ahead of time what uh, to expect. And then the process from there it's pretty straightforward. There's basically uh, a few steps to the process, which is number one, engaging a company like us. Uh, you'll, you know, have some uh, an engineer, and this is something we didn't really discuss. But how the whole process works is that it's an engineering methodology to identify different components within the property that depreciate on different times time schedules. So what, what we're going to do is send the engineer to the property, and they'll actually be able to create a very detailed report. And in that report, we'll tell you what your potential tax savings will be, how every, every component of the property is broken down into different categories that depreciate on different lives. That 
report, which is a, like I mentioned, very detailed, maybe 80, 90 pages long that has in it a one page. That's your new depreciation schedule. That one piece of paper you'll take hand off to your accountant plug. It's a one-time thing you do per property. And that's with you for the life of ownership of that property. And you're good to go. Pretty straightforward. takes a few weeks to complete from beginning to end and um, pretty hands-off. Okay. Yeah. Sounds pretty in-depth. And um, in general, say you have a, uh... I mean, I'm sure it varies, but say you have a 300-unit multifamily apartment building. How, how much does something like that cost? How much does a study cost? So um, in our every property is different, but for multifamily properties, pretty typical. Uh, we're seeing about you know five to $6,000 is our typical fee. Um, and it's not contingent on your tax savings, which means if you buy a property for a million dollars or a property for $50 million, your tax savings are going to be significantly different, but the fee to get a conservation study done is going to be pretty much the same. Okay. And I'm sure, I mean, there are probably a lot of cost segregation firms out there. Is there any, any certain, um, anything we should be looking for in a cost segregation firm? Believe it or not, there's not too many conservation firms out there. Um, there's a few other, a handful of others that are nationally based like, like us. There are probably some local local ones. Uh, but what you should be looking for, number one, is the experience that they have, that they've been doing this for a long time, have uh, number two, that they are, you know, their reports are compliant, right? Anything you're dealing with taxes, you want to make sure that it's compliant with the tax code. They're following the conservation audit techniques guide. And so therefore, if in the event of an audit, you have nothing to worry about and they should be able to stand behind their work uh, at no extra charge, obviously, because that's basically saying we are providing you with something that you're going to apply to your taxes, allowing you to take potentially huge tax deductions. You want to make sure that it's, that's you know audit proof. So that's really important. I would say um, price is, is certainly a factor. You know, this is a, a service, a commodity to, as some like to look at it for, for better uh, uh, use of a word. And I'd say another really important thing is that you want to make sure that this, the process is streamlined. Okay. The last thing you want to do is like, uh, you know, coming file your taxes and, and you still don't have the report handy. You want to make sure you're getting it done in a timely fashion. Okay, yeah, and you, and you mentioned them being compliant, which I think is crucial. So how, how would one know if they are compliant or not compliant? Well, again, the, the audit, uh, cost segregation audit techniques guide, which is published by the IRS, is on the IRS website. Okay. In there has a whole list of principles that need to go into a proper quality cost segregation study. Um, one of those things that needs to be conducted by an engineer, someone who is versed in the tax code, and uh, there's a whole numbering system, nomenclature. So it's not something that can be done just kind of on, on the back of a napkin. It is something that actually does require all of that. I would definitely look into to see what their records have been in terms of have, have any clients ever been audited. And, and just to be clear, doing a conservation study does not raise a red flag in any way, shape or form, because this is actually, it's considered a more um, appropriate and more proper way to depreciate your property. However, in the event of an audit, you want to make sure that your report is going to stand up. Your conservation study is going to stand up. So inquire about the experience or the record I would say, uh, of, of those reports. Okay. And you guys, um, Madison Specs, you guys are nationwide. So regardless of where I am in the United States, you guys can send someone out to do one of those studies. 
That's correct. So we're nationwide working all 50 states. Um, as I mentioned, we're the largest national company doing this. However, nowadays, what happened with COVID was, um, was pretty drastic in terms of our business model. So obviously, when you're dealing, and we do about, about 3,000 of these uh, a year um, across the states. So the travel of our engineers, we have them located in different locations around the states. However, even still, travel was not really possible and uh you know entering properties <laughs> was not really uh you know met with open arms so what we did was transition into a virtual site tour which allowed our engineers to walk the property with the assistance of someone on site through a video uh recording and so basically as opposed to the engineer having to travel and go there and take their own video or their own pictures their own measurements, they would basically be able to now what, we, what we're doing is with the help of someone on site, like a property manager or maintenance person or owner, et cetera, to uh, walk the property with our engineer on a video call and take that recording and get all the data they need from that. So it's actually opened up uh, the business quite a bit because it's cut down a huge amount of travel time and cost. Yeah, I would bet. Yeah, that sounds a lot more cost feasible. All right, so you know, let's talk about, um, so yeah, say I've owned a building for five years and I didn't know about this. So what about retroactive cost segregation? Is one able to capture some of the benefits of cost segregation retroactively? Yes, um, excellent question. It's not something that needs to be done in the first year of ownership. Uh, however, a lot of people like to get it done in the first year to make sure the taxes are set up the right way, their depreciation is set up the right way uh, in the first year of filing. However, if you've been doing what's called straight line depreciation, just taking your total purchase price, dividing that up by 27 and a half years, right? Subtracting a little bit for land and then taking a little bit every year, that's called straight line depreciation. If you've been doing that, you can go back um, starting this year and get a consideration study done and recoup all of the accelerated depreciation that you missed in those previous years. So let's say you own a property for five years and you now did a consideration study, any of the depreciation you could have taken in the past five years, you can now take this year um, going forward. Okay, excellent, very cool. Yeah, and that can be done without actually amending your tax returns, which is not something recommended to do. Uh, it's done by filing a special form that goes along with your tax return called a 3115, the form 3115. And we do that for our clients at no extra charge. It's just an extra, you know, extra form that allows you to change the method of accounting. Okay, and without amending the tax return. Correct. Okay, yeah, because I know that potentially throws up red flags for the IRS when you start amending. Yeah, it just, it opens you up at a greater risk of being audited. Yeah. Okay, and um, and also going back to, I want to go back, so you mentioned, yeah, you the property should at least cost, um, will be over half a million dollars. So say you had a string Say I own 20 duplexes in in Alabama. I mean, individually they probably cost maybe two or three hundred thousand, but I own 20 to 30 of them. Would those be good candidates for cost segregation owning all of those? As a um, yeah. Sure. Actually, I would say if you had a duplex in Alabama, it probably cost you more around like fifty or sixty thousand dollars potentially, um, depending on where they're located. But but yeah, I mean, you, you would need to do a conservation study on each individual property, and that might make it 
less cost efficient. Uh, we would certainly discount it because especially if, especially if they're, they were bought together, if they were bought as a portfolio and, or they are, were built together and kind of in one, you know, general location, we could typically do one report for all of them. However, if each one is kind of bought separately, has been depreciated separately and is on a different schedule and each mm -hmm. building is really different, uh, significantly, then e a report would need to be done on each property, which would have its own cost um, and, and work involved. So obviously, it, it would get less cost efficient. However, it still can be worthwhile and certainly uh, worthwhile to look into and get one of those uh, analysis to, to find out ahead of time. Okay, good to know, because yeah, I know there's many investors who are in that situation as well. Mm-hmm. All right, so looking at the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act of 2017, if I understand correctly, in some instances, a change in the act allows property owners to take their depreciation deductions much faster, which I, you may have just touched on, but is this temporary or a permanent change in the tax law? The, the thing that happened in Tax Cuts and Jobs Act was introducing something called 100% bonus depreciation which allows you to, once you've done a cost segregation study, it allows you to take any of that accelerated depreciation, meaning stuff that depreciates over a five-year schedule or 15-year schedule, and take it all upfront in the first year. So that's where you're able to take a huge amount of deductions upfront. It is in the current tax code um, with that act temporary. So the 100% bonus is good through the year 2022. So good through next year. And uh, starting in 2023, it's going to go down to 80% bonus. So you could still take a large portion of that up front, but not the entire 100%. Um, the remaining 20%, you could still take over uh, cost irrigation, meaning take five-year, 15-year, et cetera. But it's going to start phasing out from year to year until 2028. And it, according to the current um, you know, uh, writing of this, will uh, no longer be bonus depreciation. Okay. And, and why would someone want to do that? Why would someone want to take 100% on the first year? Well, 100%, again, it's not 100% of the entire depreciation. It's 100% of the accelerated depreciation. So typically 20 okay. to 30%, you know, 20 to 30% of your overall uh, property's depreciation. Uh, you know, think about it, like if you bought a million dollar property and you had an opportunity to take in the first year a $200,000 tax deduction, so why would you do that if you had a lot of income that you wanted to offset? I mean, that's a, a great tool to be able to offset that income. Okay. And pay less taxes. Okay. And just to drill down into something I'm not clear about. So when we're talking about offsetting income, is it offsetting only passive income or is it earned income as well? So real estate is considered passive income. So rental property incomes is on your Schedule E. That's passive income. It's treated differently than your active income. Um, depreciation is considered a passive deduction, which means first and foremost, it goes to offset your passive income, your rental property, real estate income. However, um, and that's across the board. That's where, that's where it goes. However, if you have more deductions than you have income, Okay, so let's say in our scenario, you had $200,000 of, of bonus depreciation tax deductions, and you only had $50,000 of real estate rental property income. So you're left with $150,000 of extra deductions. That creates what's called a passive loss. So 
two things can happen with that passive loss. Number one is that, first of all, it doesn't disappear. It's not like, you, you know, you, it disappears, you just get it and it, it goes away. It either carries forward, which means you can use it next year. You can't use it this year because you don't have enough income to offset. You use it next year. Or if you are what's called a real estate professional and you spend the majority of your time in real estate trader business, you or your spouse, you can actually use any of those extra passive losses beyond your rental property income, you can use that to offset ordinary income or active income from any other source. So there is a hierarchy of where the depreciation goes first. And that first goes to the rental property income. And once you've used that up, again, you have extra passive losses. If you're a real estate professional, you can use that against your ordinary income as well. If not, it just creates a passive loss and carries forward. Okay. So, and, and um, if you're a real estate professional, you can use that to offset that, but does that does that need to be income that comes from your real estate activities or can that be income that comes from any other source? Any other source and even your spouse's income. So if you, you know, one spouse is a high W2 earner and the other spouse is a real estate professional and you get this consideration done and get these passive losses, you can use extra losses to offset the, the spouse's W2 income or your income from any other source. Wow, that's awesome. It's huge. It's it's probably yeah. like the the greatest thing in the entire tax code. And how and just how does one qualify as a real estate professional? What are the um, qualifications to to be a real estate professional? So it is a little complex, but um, just to simplify it again, speak with your accountant. This is not you know direct tax advice for you, but speak with your own accountant. Make sure that you do qualify. There's basically two qualifications. Number one, you need to um, spend the majority of your time in the real estate trader business, meaning you can't have a W-2 job and also get this real estate professional status. Um, what is the real estate trader business? It's, you know, property management. Um, if you, you know, obviously own the properties, you're managing, you're operating, you're acquiring, you're brokering. If you're a broker, you can get those hours as well. So, um, and other things involved in the actual rental property business. The other qualification is that they have to spend at least 750 hours um, materially participating. So again, you need to actually be involved in real estate. Uh, it's not enough just to uh, you know, kind of have a, a passive role in a real estate company that you don't actually own uh, part of it. You, you actually need to be materially participating in that. Okay, and 750 hours annually. Correct. So it's not a it's not a lot, but it just basically means you can't retire, and and also get this uh, status. Okay. Yeah, that's. I mean, that's. I mean, that's awesome. That's some great information to have. All right. So, Yona, when you sell a property, do you need to pay back any of these deductions? So, when you sell any property, you're subject to a tax called depreciation recapture tax. So it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to pay back all the you know depreciation that you've taken, but what it means is that you're subject to this tax. And first of all, it's a tax that is taxed at a lower tax rate than your ordinary income tax rate, number one. Number two is that like any other real estate tax, there are ways and you know opportunities or strategies rather that you can use to offset that tax. So one great example is what's called a 1031 exchange. That's by legally, um, you know, trading one property for another through a special method, as opposed to just selling it and buying another one, you can actually trade it through a 1031 exchange, you defer 
that not only you do defer the capital gains tax by doing that, but you defer this depreciation recapture tax. Uh, there's you know other methods as well, but again, yes, it is something to be aware of that does come at the sale of the property. Okay, yeah, and that was my second question. I was going to go into the 1031, being able to defer that. Are there any other tax deferment vehicles alongside um, 1031 exchange that you can use? Um, so the, not necessarily tax deferment vehicles, but there's tax reduction vehicles. And I think one of the greatest things about real estate, especially for someone who is an active investor, meaning you're buying properties, uh, you know, let's say you're, you're not just a one property person, but you are looking to buy and sell and keep buying and keep buying, et cetera. So the depreciation from one property can actually be used to offset income from any of your properties. Because again, the rental property income all gets lumped together under one, uh, you know, in one grouping. And so any depreciation, any passive loss you have can be used to offset that. Now get this, when you sell a property, like I said, you're subject to that recapture tax. But if you have a huge amount of passive losses from the consideration on a property you bought that year, you can actually use that to offset, meaning to totally knock off that recapture tax as well, besides for income tax. So there are methods you know, strategies, like I said, to, to really get rid of it, not just to defer it. Yeah, I'm, I'm just really surprised that this isn't more popular and more people don't know about this. I mean, yes, yeah, it's pretty great. So um, how does this impact an investor's personal income taxes, if at all? Again, this is treated, um, you know, against your rental property income. So, you know, if you own a property or you invest passively in, in rental property, whether through syndication or otherwise, this depreciation or this cost segregation can be used against your rental property income. And unless you are a real estate professional, it's kind of relegated to that and you will have these passive losses, but again, they will carry forward into future years. So on your personal income taxes, I mean, that's part of your personal income tax if you, uh, if you invest in rental property on your Schedule E. Okay. All right, awesome. So is there anything else people should know? Um, this is a lot a lot more technical than we usually do. However, I think it's, yeah. the topic is it's necessary that we do so, I think. Yeah, I think it is necessary. I mean, there are so many nuances and aspects to real estate, and I'm continually learning so many different things that really help to create a big picture that make real estate investing so incredible. And so when you continuously learn different strategies like cost segregation, and others, you can really, you know, arm yourself with the proper tools to, to make sure that you are getting the, the most out of your investments. Definitely. Okay, Yona, so I want to take you through our lightning round before I let you get out of here. Absolutely. All right. So um, what book or books have greatly influenced your life? Well, the Bible has definitely influenced my life in the greatest way. Um, the Talmud, which is a great, uh, you know, the Jewish text of law, which is 20, um, it's really 60 volumes. Wow. Um, that, yeah, that's extremely powerful. Definitely, you know, read that every single day. Um, greatly influenced my life. In a business sense, I would say um, the, the book Think and Grow Rich, is a, is a great tool. I think a lot of those things I've gotten from my spiritual uh, you know, side before I read that book, but to see that, to apply some of those things in the business world uh, were, was kind of eye-opening to me. Okay, 
And how has a failure or perceived failure actually allowed you a greater success later? Um, I think the biggest perceived failure or, or failure that I've had is just not realizing uh, potential. And we all suffer from this because if you believe that you uh, are, you know, uh, a person who has ultimate, you know, infinite potential, I think real humility is realizing that no matter what you've accomplished, you've not even scratched the surface of your potential. And so I'm going to, you know, give this a more generic answer, not a specific failure, but the failure to realize that you can really do anything. And it's, it sounds cliche. If you put your mind to it, you can really do anything. But I think we all suffer from this and, um, and really sell ourselves short all the time. Absolutely. Totally agree. All right, Nyoni, if you could have an advertisement, well, I always say advertisement, if you could have a billboard anywhere with anything on it, what would it say? Wow, that's a good one. That's a great question. Um, if I could have a billboard, say anything, anywhere, uh, I would probably write, you know, call your mother. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think all of us get in, the, <laughs> get in the habit of not doing that as much as we should, huh? Yeah. And you're, you, you have a pretty large family, right? I do. I have six, six children. Wow, six kids. Yeah, that's huge. What ages? My oldest is 16, um, so that's where all my gray hairs come from, and my youngest is six. Wow. Yeah, you're busy. You're a busy guy. Busy, busy. Yeah, busy, busy. <laughs> all right, so, Yona, what is a habit or peculiar routine that you love? Um, peculiar routine? I would say a habit that I like to do is... Well, I, maybe my peculiar routine is how much time I spend on LinkedIn. That's that's pretty peculiar to a lot of people. <laughs> but I, I really believe, you know, networking is is the key to success. And, and is LinkedIn pretty much your go-to social media? Are you, I mean, is that the one you're most active on? Or are you 100% active on that one and not any others? I'm definitely most active on LinkedIn. That's for sure. By, by far. Uh, I, I'm also a little active on Facebook. I have my own Facebook group over there and active in some other, uh, popular real estate groups. Uh, Instagram just kind of started out, but that, that, that's pretty much it. Bigger pockets. I don't know if you call it social media as much, but, uh, pretty active there as well. Okay. All right. And in the last five years, what new belief or habit has most improved your life? Um, the last five years, I would say, um, creating content is something I never mm. did before. And it's, you know, podcasting as well. I think podcasting is great content platform to be able to create content, but what it's done is it's really allowed, uh, me personally to be able to express myself in ways that I never really did before. And so just writing, writing um, is something that I find very therapeutic and really trying to just get those ideas from your mind, you know, onto paper, onto screen and, and through the, the you know, spoken word also. It's, it's quite amazing. Okay, excellent. All right, so now what advice would you give to a smart, driven, 
investor about to invest with someone raising capital for a multi real estate venture? Do your homework, <laughs> research, research the uh, the potential in investor. I mean, in the in potential sponsor, make sure that they have uh, a good track record. And the way that you do that is actually speaking with other people who've invested with them in the past. See what the experience has been like for them. Okay, very good. And I mean, you're pretty active on um, LinkedIn and you do a lot of networking. So what are, what are some bad recommendations you hear in your day-to-day for people new to investing or entrepreneurship? What are, say that again, what are some bad, bad advice? Yeah, bad recommendations or bad advice that you hear in your day-to-day in your network. Um, you know, there's, I think each person approaches many different situations differently. So it's, it's hard to say because what might seem bad for me might actually be a good idea for someone else um, and, and vice versa. But one thing that, yeah, but one thing that is kind of objectively bad that, that I've seen is, um, is when people say, you know, just, just jump in, right? You know, there, there's truth to that. You do have to take a jump. You do have to take a leap if you want to do something. But, you know, real estate investing as a syndicator, as you know, Donald, is something that's, it's really a business. And so to create a business, not everyone's really cut out for being an entrepreneur or being a business owner. And so some advice that I've seen people saying is, you know, just, you know, just do it, just jump in, right? Go for your first deal, just, just do it. But I think there needs to be a lot more, um, you know, people may be very happy as an employee, very, very yeah. happy with the company they're in, very happy, you know, doing things. And, and it's not really cut out for everyone. So that's one thing that I would say is kind of bad advice. Okay. And definitely, definitely true. I mean, everybody can't be a business owner, right? So Right. All right. So a couple of more and we'll let you out of here. So in the last five years, what have you become better at saying no to? Um, in the last five years, I've been much better um, at saying no to, uh, to time commitments. Meaning people saying, I'd love for you to, you know, come and, you know, go on a going to trip with me or go and have, have coffee with me and things like that when there's not a real specific purpose behind it. I mean, you know, I'm very into networking. I'm very into meeting a lot of people, but I'm also uh, filter that a lot more than I used to. Okay. Very good. All right. And the last one, Jonas, when you're feeling, when you feel overwhelmed or unfocused, what do you do? When I feel overwhelmed or unfocused, that's a great question. I like to, I like to laugh. <laughs> I like to, you know, get a little comedy, whether it's uh, improv or, or something else that just kind of takes my mind off everything, makes me laugh. Once you laugh, whether it's at yourself or, or something else, kind of just releases a lot of tension and it kind of gets you refocused on things. Okay, yeah, and I'm sure, I mean, I'm sure with six kids, you get a lot of laughing in. I mean, they really... <laughs> They really keep a lot of laughing. Uh, yeah, a lot of laughing, but also a lot of uh, frustration. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that too. That too, for sure. I only have one, so I can't imagine six. All right, Yona, thank you so much for your time. This, this was some incredibly valuable, valuable information. I think our listeners are going to get a lot from this. 
Um, before we jump off, how can people get in touch with you if they have more questions or want to use your services? Best way to find me is on LinkedIn. Yona Weiss, there's only one of me. And um, pretty easy to find me. If you do want to look into more information about cost segregation, you can go to my website, yonawice.com. And you can even fill out a form there to get a free feasibility analysis for any of your properties. So you can go ahead and do that. And do mention, if you do connect with me on LinkedIn, put a little message that you heard me on this podcast and I will know exactly where you came from. All right, excellent. And Yona, you also have a podcast yourself. Um, tell people um, the name of your podcast and how they can find that. Sure. Uh, it's called Weiss Advice. So just my last name, W-E-I-S-S, Advice. Find it anywhere you listen to podcasts and I uh, hope you enjoy it. All right, excellent. Yona, thanks so much for joining us. I really appreciate your time and advice and I will be speaking with you soon. Probably see you um, later this week on one of the other um, forums. Pleasure, Donald. Thank you again for having me. All right. Thanks so much. Take care. There you have it, guys. Another episode of Dealmaker Diaries in the books. If you enjoy and or find value in what we're doing, please do leave us a nice review. It goes a long way in keeping the show moving in the right direction. For you investors, if you're looking for places to put your hard-earned capital to work, head on over to our website, g1cgrp.com, and sign up for our investor list to be informed of the different projects we're raising capital for that will provide you with the cash flow your investments so much deserves. <laughs>